0: And good morning, um, we're glad that you're here, uh, we'd like to welcome, I know some families maybe are returning from trips, welcome back, welcome back home, some families are still traveling, we're glad you're tuning in, and we're glad that you're all here, if you're new today, we're glad that you're here, I know today, actually, um, I'm doing the newcomers meeting, so if you are new, uh, come down to the first floor, there's a little part down there that says newcomers, love to meet you, tell you more about the church um, and I'm doing it, maybe I shouldn't say I'm doing it, then no one will come. Um, no, please come. Please come. Um, we, we'd love to meet you. Now, so today, uh, we, we are back in the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. So if you will, just be going there yourselves. I'll also mention, um, you know, we dismissed the kids. Next week, uh, kids, green room and blue room, both will be operating. Um, so hopefully, uh, we expect more families to be back. Um, so be ready for that next week as well. All right, we're going to read this text first, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get, get right into it, all right? Let's read this. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Haggai chapter 2, 1 through 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. To Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. And to the remnant of the people, ask them... Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. and, And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house says the Lord Almighty, and in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. If you didn't know who declared it, it was the Lord Almighty, and he says it a lot. I just, just, just noticed that here. Let's pray, and we'll get into it. Lord, I pray now that our hearts are open and attentive, and attentive uh, to what you have for us today, Lord, that you'll teach us about who you are and what you want from us May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. May you be glorified and lifted up here today for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, we, we as humans are really good at starting things. We're not as good at, at finishing stuff uh, in general. I know some of us were superheroes, super disciplined. We're good at that, at least for myself. I can, I can be gun ho about starting something, maybe it's a diet, maybe just for instance, and then pretty soon, maybe the next day, can't finish, can't follow through, right? Uh, or An easy example, it's easy to, easy to fall in love, but we as humans are pretty bad at staying in it, because marriage, marriage is great, marriage is beautiful, but there are difficulties in it. And what we're going to see from Haggai chapter 2, what we saw in Haggai chapter 1, is that the people came back to their land, right? Everything was devastated. 70 years in captivity. 70 years in in Babylonian exile. They returned back by the grace of God. He he orchestrated the whole thing. They come back. Everything's leveled. And they're excited. So they start building the temple. However, opposition comes again. you got the Samaritans from the south. You have opposition coming now from the Persian Empire. And so they stop. Stop all of it. But they keep building their own houses. So you have this scene of the temple of God totally flat, but the other houses being built up. In fact, the text says they're pretty nice. And so Haggai sent 15 years later. Still, the temple is desolate. Still, the temple is totally flat, but their houses looking pretty good. And so Haggai 1 uh, was sent. The message is, you need to set your priorities in the right place. Because right now, your heart isn't in it. Right? And that's what we learned last week. That we need to consider our ways. Evaluate our own lives. Is there some aspect of our life, our finances, family, um, our social life, our work that isn't catered to his kingdom? Right? And that, that was, that was the, the challenge from last week. And, and that was a challenge. But this week, it's a little more encouraging. Because... Uh, the, the, the principle we're going to see here is that as we work for God, as we serve Him, uh, as we do ministry, because all of us were called to a certain kind of ministry, right? Uh, God has called us to work for Him in some way. If you are um, a husband or a wife, you are called to minister to your spouse. If you are a teacher, yes, you are called to minister to your students, to, to mentor them, to be a good example to them. Um, if, if, you, if you attend a church, a local church, you are called to serve that church. So whatever service you might find yourself in, discouragement will come in service to God. That's the first principle we see in Haggai chapter 2. Discouragement will come. So the question that we're going to look to answer is how do we prepare ourselves for discouragement or what do we do in discouraging times to keep moving forward? Because discouragement will come in ministry. How do we prepare ourselves against discouragement? Discouragement. And that's exactly what we see here. Maybe the discouragement you come up against is um, a personality clash with another volunteer. Uh, maybe, maybe it's you've been praying for this unsaved family member for years and it seems like nothing is working. Seems like it hasn't gone anywhere. You can be discouraged and be tempted to quit. How do we keep moving forward? What, what can we remind ourselves of to have us keep moving forward? And that's where Haggai 2, 1 through 9 Helps us. So, as we get into the text today, we're going to notice first dates. That's in verse 1 of chapter 2. And I know we're all excited because when we wake up in the morning and we do our devotionals, we're just so excited to read those dates, aren't we? Dates and names, those are the best. But actually, here and oftentimes, the dates are very significant. We're going to see more of that later. Uh, but initially, what we see right off the bat, it says, um, on the 21st day of the seventh month, uh, that means on our calendar, it means um, October 17th. Uh, and, and that means it's been about one month since they started reworking on the temple. So first, they went back to the land, started rebuilding. There was opposition. They stopped. Then God said, hey, I'm warning you. You need to do this. They said, okay. right? They responded in obedience at, in verses 12 through 15 in chapter 1. And so now they're being discouraged again, only one month after going at it once again. And we know, I mean, we can hear a killer sermon on Sunday, and then Monday comes, and we're hype on Sunday. I mean, we are, we are ready to go, ready to serve God, ready to do whatever it takes to live as Christ. We are hype, and then Monday comes, you got to go to work, and people are the worst, right? And you are discouraged, right? Then Tuesday comes, and you get a call from a family member, something's happened, and you are discouraged, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and by the time Saturday comes, you forgot what he done preached on, right? Because it's discouraging. There can be discouraging times as we look to serve the Lord. So one month has gone by, and they're discouraged. So what are they discouraged about? We're going to read that in a second. We're going to read that right now. Let's read that here. And it says this. This is God speaking to the remnant, to the remnant, the 50,000 that went back to the land to rebuild God's temple. God speaks to them and he says this. Who is left among you who saw this temple, the temple of the Lord, in its former glory? That's Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? So first, God poses a question. And I think we need to also consider, why does God ask questions to his people? And when we get to the New Testament also, Jesus asks a lot of questions. I mean, he knows everything. Why ask questions? Um, I I think it's a a desire for relationship. It's a desire for conversation. It's a desire for them to think on their own, to consider their ways, right? So he asks them, who's left among you who remembers? So right now, God is addressing the elders, of Israel. So 70 years in captivity, he's addressing those that were there when Solomon's temple was still constructed, right? And I, I would say probably even there, the older people that remember Solomon's temple, they, they were probably telling the stories to the younger ones. Like the younger ones in Babylon, they're like, man, you see Babylon's gardens? Wow, they're, that's great. You see, you see their, their temples? Wow, they're huge. And you got the OGs in the back. Uh, you got the older people in the back. They're like, you, you ain't seen nothing. You don't know about Solomon's Temple. That thing was huge. It's kind of like, this isn't for everyone. Maybe it is. It's kind of like those that played basketball in the 90s and then saw Michael Jordan play. And then people today that talk about LeBron James and the people that grew up in the 90s that saw him play, they're like, you don't even know what you're talking about. LeBron James, he's trash compared to Michael Jordan, right? Um, So so you could see that kind of play out uh, where, where the older ones are talking to the younger ones and reminding them or telling them, what the previous temple was like, right? It was glorious. You have no idea. So as they're building, the older ones remember what it was like and the younger ones are recalling the stories they've been told about this temple. And as they're building, right, it's just a foundation, they're getting discouraged because they start remembering. Sorry, I'll stop doing this eventually. I'll do it again, I promise, but all right. But as they're building, this is me building, they're remembering what the temple was like, and it's discouraging them about their work in the now. And so we're going to see what are some principles for us in our kingdom work that we can look to in times of discouragement. And we have to understand, this temple, Solomon's temple, was glorious. I mean, when David, uh, David before he passed on, he left certain materials to Solomon. Um, he left seven and a half million pounds of gold to, for, the, for Solomon's temple. That's 3.5 million kilos, kilograms. He also set aside 75 million pounds of silver. That's about 150 plus Statue of Liberties that he set aside for, for this temple, right? And, and not only that, but when, when it was dedicated, the temple was dedicated, 22,000 oxen were offered 120,000 sheep, all just for the dedication of this great temple. I mean, Solomon and the glory of Israel at that time, they were on top of the world. They were the power on planet earth. And these elders, they they remember the cedars brought in from Lebanon. They, They remember the wood being overlaid with gold. They remember the large pillars and the floors made of marble. They remember that as they stood on the temple mount and looked down at Mount Ophel, they could see Solomon's palace. He's the king of the world. They're on top. And this is where they're at as they're building. And now these same people are standing at the same spot, looking down on a devastated temple, that's not turning out how they remembered. So they're discouraged. They're frustrated. And we know they're frustrated because back in Ezra chapter 3, if you remember last time I talked about, if you're going to study this story for yourself, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 highlight the entire context of Haggai. And in Ezra chapter 3, 15 years before Haggai, when they initially come to the land and they start rebuilding, it's during the time of the Feast of Booths. And this is a, celebration, a celebratory time, right? Seven days of celebration. Last day, uh, it's, it's more of a time of reflection. But the seven days of celebration. So they get back. They're all celebrating. It's time to rebuild, except the ones that were here when the temple was in its former glory. We find them in Ezra chapter 3, weeping and trying to hide the fact that they're weeping because everyone is having a good time. So this is where they're at. Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesied of another temple that would be greater than Solomon's temple. So, as they're working, they see only a foundation that pales in comparison. They think, why work on this temple? It's not like the last one. So, what we're going to see here is that to fight against temptation in ministry, the first principle is this resist the temptation to compare, resist the temptation to compare. There are a few things that the, the remnant is, is comparing their current work with. And the first one is, they're comparing with the past. They're comparing with the past. They remember the good old days. They, they were great days, but it causes them to be discouraged and distracted from the task at hand. Uh, they, they were frustrated. And they were comparing what they were doing now with the past, and therefore not in the now, not in the moment. And I think I think some of us could be here. Maybe you wish things were like they were before, so you live discouraged because things are different now. Or, or how I wish I could just go back to the way things were. It was easier to serve God back then. I had more support back then. Maybe you're discouraged because your life isn't what it used to be, and you're just living in the past, stuck in the past. Because these things can really affect not only our service, but our relationship with God as well. Um, in high school, I had a close group of friends, a tight, tight-knit group of friends. And, um, but when we got to college, there was a little bit of a falling out in our relationship. And it totally, totally crushed me for years. Uh, so much so, um, at, at, in Chicago, I started uh, dating my wife, and, and eventually she became my fiance, uh, And eventually we got married. Yay! It's great. <laughs> but in the midst of that, this was taking place... And I was so stuck in what was that it affected the relationship I was having with my now wife. I wasn't in the moment with her because I was stuck in the past. And I think this can be the same with our relationship with God. We can be so stuck in the way things were. Oh, how I wish things were like it was back then. God, why would you bring me here? I liked it back there. And we don't see what God has for us now so the first principle here we see is resist the temptation to compare with the past. But we also see resist the temptation to compare with our own expectation. Because the remnant, they're expecting this temple to be better than the former in appearance, right? That's what they're expecting. But their expectations aren't being met. So they're discouraged. And maybe our life isn't turning out the way we thought it would. I thought I'd be here by now. I thought I'd be making this much impact for the kingdom. I thought more people would be coming to my missional family. I thought this, I thought that, but things just aren't working out the way I thought. And because we're so stuck in our expectation, we're not living in the now with what God has for us here and now. So resist the temptation to compare with the past and resist the temptation to compare with our own expectations. And I'll add something else. Um, is that I think they're being discouraged as well, because they're assuming that because what they're working on is smaller, therefore it's insignificant. What They think what they're working on is smaller, therefore it's insignificant. Uh, but in fact, um, it's not insignificant. Uh, the book of Zechariah was actually written, um, it's a uh, it was written alongside Haggai, right, the same, the same time, to the same people, the remnant that came back from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And in Zechariah, we read this. And, and this is to the 50,000 that are rebuilding the temple. Do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the day of small things. So they're working on this temple. It's small. It's not like the one before. And as they're building, they're discouraged. There it is again. As they're building, they're discouraged because... What they're working on is small, so they assume it's insignificant. But Zechariah says, do not despise the day of small things. While the elders of Israel wept over the day of small things, the God of Israel did not. Because they're thinking, if God were really in this, things would be bigger by now. But, but they're missing the fact that God rescued them, that his presence is with them, and that God has plans for them to prosper. So to be sure, to be sure, so that we're not confused God's mission is a big thing, right? It's a big thing. And we'd be wrong to rest and content in only small things, but we would also be wrong to despise the small things God has called us to. Whether that's simply loving your neighbor, or that's simply serving your wife or husband, or that's simply sharing your testimony with a coworker, whatever it is, or continuing in prayer for your coworkers that are unsaved, whatever it might be, it might seem small but God's going to use it for big things for his kingdom. They usually don't happen right away, and maybe not in the way we expect, but he can use those things in a mighty big way. So number one, as discouraging times come, because they will, first we resist the temptation to compare, but we also remember the faithfulness of God in the past. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past. And as we continue in our text, we're going to see God gives a command. He says, be strong, right? And he says it, not once, not twice, but three times. And that phrase, be strong, it it means something different for an ancient Jew that it does for us. Right? We're told to be strong. We're like, you know, we're pretty hype about that. But it's another level for the ancient Jew. Because if you think about the history of the nation, uh, you would think about the great Moses. The one who led them through led them. from slavery, uh, led them through the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness up to the promised land, right? That great Moses, as he dies, who takes his place? Joshua, right? And the great Joshua who eventually conquered uh, Canaan land and, and gave them the promised land. Um, when, when Joshua receives now the leadership of Israel, uh, God sends him a message. And that, of course, is found in Joshua chapter 1. And what does he say? Be strong. In fact, he doesn't say it one time. He says it three times in Joshua chapter 1, in verse 6, 7, and 9. So for an ancient Jew, when, when, when they're receiving this message from, from Haggai, from the Lord through Haggai, and they're listening to it, and he says, be strong, they're like, hmm. And then he says it a second time. And then he says it a third time. Like, whoa. Okay, I thought what I was doing was insignificant, but in a way, he's connecting what they're doing now with those big events that he did in Israel's history. And not only was it just for Joshua, but when David's on his deathbed, right, David, the great king, right, obviously didn't do some great things, but overall, good king, right? He, when he's on his deathbed, talking to his son Solomon to give him leadership, the great Solomon who was top of the world, right? He, in their conversation, while David's on his deathbed, he tells Solomon to be strong, and he doesn't say it once He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times. So this is what the people of Israel, the remnant, are thinking of. As he says, be strong, and repeats it three times. He's thinking, and if you're the people of Israel, you're hearing this prophecy proclaimed. You're thinking, wow, I thought this was insignificant. But somehow, in a way, he's connecting what they're doing now with what God has done in the past. And saying, you might think it's insignificant, but I'm going to use your small beginnings... These small things that you're doing, these small steps of faithfulness to do something big, even like that. Be strong, be strong, be strong. And then in verse 5, we see this. In verse 5, According to the covenant that I made with you when you first came out of Egypt. And this is significant because God is taking a discouraged people that are working for him who think that Uh, They're not doing anything significant for God and saying that what they're doing now is connected to what he did in Egypt. And and the story of the redemption in Egypt, the, the um, the exodus, right? This is equivalent to like the Christian cross for the Jewish people, the ancient Jewish people. That's how significant that event was for the Jewish people at the time. So he's saying, in a way, what you're doing now, it seems small. It's connected to the greatest event in your people's history. And so I I thought, how does this connect to us? And I think it does. Because for Christians on this side of the cross, there's a very real sense where even in the small bits of obediences that we take, those steps of faith to love others, to serve others, we are reflecting, in a sense, the greatest event in Christian history, the cross. As we love others, we're reflecting the cross of Jesus Christ, what he did for us. As we serve others, we're reflecting the service of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Right? We shouldn't take those small steps of obedience for granted because we are connected in a very real sense to what Christ did on the cross. But more than that, we're carrying on the mission right, of what Christ did on the cross in a certain sense. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. We are continuing the mission of God even today. So first... What can encourage us when we come to discouragement in ministry, we resist the temptation to compare. But we also remember the faithfulness of God in the past and that we are connected to that in a certain way. And now, we remain aware of his presence. We remain aware of his presence. And God continues in Haggai 2 verse 4, and he says, work. Why? For I am with you. The reason they're to be strong and continue in their work is because God is present with them. So by responding to God's word and his warning uh, in obedience and getting back in step with God's ways, the people of Israel can now know that God is present with them and will provide for them as they take part in God's work. God is with them now just as, he's with, just as he was with them uh, in Egypt in the, in the Exodus story. And what encouraging news that would be for the people of Israel, that God is with them. Um, After many years of hardship and danger in the heart of Africa, this guy named David Livingston, uh, he received an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow. And on that occasion, he said, Would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. On those words, says David Livingston, I staked everything and they never failed. And I think we often take the presence of God for granted as we work, as we live. uh, That we have the all-powerful God, the the Holy Spirit with us, right, on this side of the cross, as New Testament believers. The all-powerful God. And we often go to other places for strength, But all worldly strength is weakness compared to the strength of God. And and we have an all-wise God that is with us. And all worldly wisdom is foolish compared to the wisdom of God. So we have a place to go to for wisdom as we work. A place to go to for strength. And he's with us as we work. How encouraging that is. And it was definitely for the people of Israel as well. But wait, there's more. More encouragement to be had as we serve the Lord. So, as, as we uh, look to fight discouragement in ministry, first, we resist the temptation to compare. Second, we remember the faithfulness of God in the past. Third, we remain aware of his presence. And fourth, we recall the promises of God. We recall the promises of God. So God reassures them that he will, he will take their small efforts of obedience and he will use them in his grand plan of redemption. How encouraging that would have been. And we're going to read verses uh, 6 through 9 again. And they read like this. For thus says the Lord of hosts. So we're about to get into some. So the book of Haggai is a book of prophecy. So we're about to get into some prophecy now. Just a warning. Don't know why. It's a prophetic book. Verse 6, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. And the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And get this the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Before we dive into a little bit of prophecy here, um, at least in my view, scriptures are not given for us to necessarily speculate about the future, but to strengthen and encourage our faith in the now. So when we see how God has worked uh, down through the ages in accordance with what he's told his people in advance, it encourages us to keep serving him, knowing that the remaining unfulfilled prophecies will surely yet be fulfilled. And we have a part in that plan. Of salvation for his people. So, and and another thing about prophecy is that when you get into it, there are generally several views about when it's fulfilled. About is it fulfilled yet or not, right? So, so many commentators differ on when the shaking of the heavens and earth and nations take place. Which mostly people assume is judgment. Some say it referred to uh, God's stirring of King Darius to supply help and materials uh, for the building of the temple. That's in Ezra chapter 6. Others say that it refers to God's bringing future judgment on the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. Um, But, and and I think it could be multiple fulfillments. However, I take this to refer ultimately to the second coming of Christ when God will shake the heavens and the earth in, in, in the judgment of the living and the dead. Um, uh, Joel chapter 3 uses a similar language of the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And the reason why I take it to be second coming um, is because um, it, we, we see similar prophecies in the New Testament. Um, Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 16 uh, use a similar language to, to discuss the shaking of the heavens and the earth. Uh, to con- as he conquers all the rebellious nations in the land. And this is, the idea of future promises is immensely encouraging. Because these are promises and prophecies that have not yet taken place and God has ordained that we, his people, get to be a part of what God is continually doing. And that would have been true for the Israel people and it's true for us as well. Um, And I'll also say, actually I'll get to that later. And he says in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. So we just, we just said that in my view, this is the, the shaking of the heavens and earth is the second coming of Christ. I believe there's a shift here. I believe there's a shift. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, because about 500 years later, after this time, this same temple, though it was remodeled, Jesus Christ ministered in and walked through. And Herod, he took this temple and expanded it with the wealth of Rome. But this is the temple that Jesus ministered in, walked through, loved others in. And God says, in this place, I will bring peace. And I take this to be prophecy uh, for Christ, because on Mount Moriah, hundreds of years later, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would come and make peace between us and God through the death on the cross. Because without his sacrifice, we have no peace. You're an enemy of God, Scripture says. But because of what he did on the cross, there is peace between God and man through faith in him, through his sacrificial work on the cross. So what he's doing here is he's stopping, he's trying to stop them from thinking and being stuck in the past and calling them to what is ahead, to change their perspective. They're stuck in the past, stuck in their expectation, stuck in comparing with other things, but God is saying, here's what I'm doing, you're a part of it. Be encouraged. Be uplifted. Uh, In in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, forget what lies behind and look to what is ahead. Keep your eyes on his promises for the future. But also I'd say keep your eyes on his promises for your life. Not just on the promises for the future, but your promises for your life now. He says that if you're in Christ, then you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. He promises that his children will one day be in his perfect presence where there will be no sin and all tears will be washed away. He promises that we don't need to take revenge because all justice will be served by the great judge on judgment day. He promises that we can live with confidence before God because of the blood of Christ. It covers all our sin. He promises that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purposes. We have so much to draw from. So when discouraging times come, look to his promises, not just for the future, you're part of his big grand plan, but also for your life because he's promised so much. But it doesn't stop there. And this, I think, is what I'll finish with. We're going back to the date. I said we were going to go back to the date because it is very significant here. It says the seventh month of the 21st day, October 17th. This was the last day of the Feast of Booths. And if you know anything, as I've already mentioned before, seven days of the Feast of Booze, it's a big celebration. I mean, families are coming together, they're camping out, like they're having a good time because they're celebrating the faithfulness of God in the history of Israel, right? And after each day in the Feast of Booze, they would all gather together in a big open space, and the the high priest would come up with a big pot, a big jug, there's probably a better word for it, big jug, and it would be filled with water. And he would come before all the people, and he would pour out this water. And it would be symbolic of, if you remember, the story of Moses when he struck the rock. Right? Struck the rock. And all that water came out. Sometimes I think when we envision that story, he struck the wa- rock, and it's like... <laughs> I mean, there's like three million people. So he struck the rock. It was enough to like quench all their thirst. So he struck the rock. Probably, you know, something like that. Um, but... He struck the rock, so it's to symbolize God's faithfulness in the wilderness as they're on their way to the promised land, right? And, this, they, and as, as it's being poured out, they're celebratory, they are happy, but the last day of Feast of Booths, something else takes place. And that is, on the eighth day, the high priest will come up with that jug, except it's empty. And he would stand before everyone, and he would begin to symbolically pour out Nothing. And this was a reserved time for the people of Israel. No more hooting and hollering. They are reserved praying, praying that, Lord, someday fill that cup up to overflowing. May your promises be fulfilled. Right. So this is the cry of their heart. It's a quiet moment. right? And this was the last day to reflect on the promises that have not yet been fulfilled. Now, about 500 years later, roughly... We find Jesus in the same temple. We find Jesus on the same day of the Feast of Booths, on the last day. And you can imagine the space, right, filled with people and quietly reserved as the high priest comes up with that empty jug. And as he symbolically pours it out, it says in the text in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up. Right as they're, as they're calling out, crying out, Lord, fill up that jug. Jesus stands up on the last day, the greatest day of the festival. Jesus stood, and it says that he cries out with a loud voice. He mustered everything inside of him so everyone could hear. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Is it to say what you're waiting to come out of that jug is standing in your midst? And I would say that there's no way we can keep going without water. We need to constantly go to the one who is himself living water. So here's the bottom line. Last week, God used Haggai 1 to stir us to action, to put him in the rightful place in our lives. And I think he's using Haggai 2 verses 1 through 9 to remind us of one thing. Discouragement is going to come. It's going to happen. And if it catches you off guard and you're not ready for it, you're going to quit that thing God has called you to do. So in order not to do that, he's taught us today to resist the temptation to compare God's calling on your life with anything, with the past, with other people's lives, with, with our, even our expectations. Resist the temptation to compare, but also to remember the Lord is with us in the midst of our work, and he desires that we experience him as we serve, not just serve And finally, we need to recall the future promises of God and remember that even the small things are part of his bigger, grander plan. We're going to close in prayer now, so I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up.